Hello and welcome to the first episode of Sounds and Sweet Airs, the new podcast from the Shakespeare and Music Study Group. My name is Michael Graham, and I'm the digital officer for the group and the producer of this podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with the founder of the Shakespeare and Music Study Group, Michelle Asai. Michelle was born in Tehran and trained in piano performance in Kiev and Paris. She currently works at the University of Huddersfield, where she's researching a project on Shakespeare and censorship in Soviet and post-Soviet music, film and theatre. Michelle also regularly appears as a concert pianist and writes for Gramophone magazine. In forthcoming episodes, Michelle and I will be exploring the enormous, varied and wonderful topic of Shakespeare and music. Shakespeare's own use of music in his plays, musical adaptations of Shakespeare's work from different times and places, and the insights of those who've studied, interpreted and performed Shakespearean music. We'll be talking to a number of fantastic guests, including academics, composers, performers, directors and more. But first, I wanted to talk with Michelle herself about how and why the Shakespearean Music Study Group was formed, its current activities and the long-term vision for the group. We also discussed Michelle's fascinating personal history with Shakespeare and her research into Soviet and post-Soviet Shakespeare music, including what Shakespeare means to Russians and Russian composers, encounters with Shakespeare in Georgia, and whether Stalin really did try to ban Hamlet. If you'd like to find out more about the Shakespeare and Music Study Group, you can find us on our website, shakespeareandmusic.wordpress.com, and at Shakesmas on Twitter. But for now, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Asai. Let's start with you, Michelle. So what first got you interested in this enormous world of Shakespeare and music? Thank you, Michael. Yes, Shakespeare and music, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Many years ago, when I, was, um, when I had just finished my undergraduate degree at the Sorbonne and was thinking about what to do at, in, at master's level, I started getting in touch with people in England because I, wasn't, I was a bit disappointed with the Sorbonne's uh, attitude to musicology, which was basically leaving out performance. And for me, as somebody who had piano performance at the basis of my um, of my education and piano and music training I was finding myself quite isolated so I got in touch with people in England because I saw in England university at the university we have music both as performance and as um, an academic and musicology topic so uh, interestingly enough because I had a great love for Shostakovich's music and that was something I had um, grown to be so much fond of for many years ever since my uh, years in Kiev I contacted David Fanning in Manchester University of Manchester just asking what do you think I should do for masters and he said you know at the back of my mind I have a, an idea for a really ideal topic for your PhD for you but I won't tell you for now so I of course I pestered him and said oh please please let me know what it is I'm <laughs> so curious now and and he said I think one day you should do a PhD on Shakespeare and Shostakovich yeah. I, I don't know why because I was so much I was always writing very poetically and uh, putting little poems at the end of my things and so maybe just if the fact that uh, one could see that I was so much into theatre and poetry and music, the kind of the interdisciplinary. And that is the thing, the, the fact that also between my studies in Kiev and before starting doing musicology at the Sorbonne, I did two and a half years of theatre acting in, in Canada. What prompted that was that near the end of my studies in Kiev, I came across Russian School of Theatre. And I started thinking about whether it is possible to use Stanislavski's uh, method acting and Meyerhold's uh, biomechanics and physical acting as basis for uh, teaching piano, for, for helping under to understand music in a more dramatic way, 
which was again prompted by Shostakovich's music, which has always a kind of a story and drama behind it. So that all pushed me to think, well, to understand that and to ever do that, I need to feel what it is to be an actor. So I took acting classes and I did theater acting. So that is when and I got so absorbed in theater that at the moment I really had to make a decision, do I want to be an actor or do I want to go back and be a musician? Which, because I had left so much in Iran in order to become a musician and I had sacrificed so much, I just found that I couldn't betray music altogether. So I was really trying to find a way of getting both music and theater together. And in master's level is a bit more complicated. I was working on against Shostakovich because that was what I thought would be the ideal thing for me then. But when it got to PhD, I thought, that's it. I'm now going to do something that has theatre and music together. Right. And that is why Shakespeare came to, to mind. And of course, more Russian music, because that's what I had always been interested in and had been doing my research on. Now, why did I mean, uh, I go back if you have any extra questions that I ask, but I can tell you how the idea of the group came to me. Sure. Yeah, that was going to be my next, my next question. Well, I could ask you loads of questions because I had no idea <laughs> you had a potential alternative career as an actor lined up as well. <laughs> so, but let's stick to Shakespeare and music just for the minute and let's um, ask that question. Why, why, what brought this Shakespeare and music group into, into existence? What, what sort of inspired you to form this collective? Yeah, so... When I started the PhD at the Sorbonne in Cotutel with Sheffield, so it means that you have basically two supervisors from two universities and you get to have two PhDs, which is quite cool. Anyway, when I started the PhD, um, I started, of course, going to conferences. And the first conference I was going to go was in Paris. It was 2014 for the 450th anniversary of the birth of Shakespeare. Uh, so Paris did a big conference, a congrès, congress for it. I thought Shakespeare and music probably is going, there are going to be so many people who are going to propose a seminar on that. And I'll have no chance on hell, you know, in hell to be accepted because <clears throat> I was still quite junior, I was, you know, first, second year of PhD. So I thought, okay, I sent a proposal for a session, a seminar session on Shakespeare and Central Eastern Europe. I did that and I actually had something like, you know, 18 different countries for, <laughs> and people sending the proposal. It was absolutely fantastic. But I got there and I saw that, you know, to my surprise, there was absolutely no seminar or panel or session on Shakespeare and music. Hmm. So I thought, well, that's quite strange. You know, this is a topic that I would have thought, you know, that I... So that I kind of carried it with me. And then there was the, the World Shakespeare Congress in London and Stratford, the very big one in 2016, which was um, because of you know, the 400th anniversary and everything, it was absolutely huge. By then the Central Eastern Europe, we had become really like a collective and group. So we decided to, re to do another seminar session there. And again, I thought, okay, this time, given that it is, you know, London, Stratford, and it is, you know, there's going to be a complete, you know, it's really absolutely international. I probably will, you know, will have only, they only allowed one seminar proposal and I put it on the group that I knew so that, you know, I have a chance. Again, I go there and there is absolutely no seminar or anything at all about Shakespearean music. And that's the moment that I thought to myself, well, wait a second, there's something missing here. Why isn't there anything going on about Shakespeare music in Shakespeare conferences? The mm. main ones, I've gone to two absolutely important ones. And not saying that there isn't anything like that specifically in any music conference either. So that's why, you know, for the next thing, which was in Gdansk and European Shakespeare Association uh, conference, I proposed on Shakespeare and music only, actually. <laughs> I, I betrayed my Central Eastern Europe people. But I put a seminar and a panel, and both of them got accepted. And we actually had so much that we had to ask for extra, extra sessions, the same as it happened in Rome and you were there. We had to have two sessions to be able to you know, manage everyone. So this whole thing gave me, and you know, I thought, um, by then I had come across the literature on it as well, and seeing that quite a lot of books that are written on Shakespearean music are from the point of view of English scholars rather than, you know, English and modern, uh, early modern scholars. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I've sort of noticed as well. 
Yeah, but you've seen that. Yeah. So mm. I was quite, you know, I thought, well, where is the, and which is quite helpful. For example, mm. you know, there's a wonderful scholar, David Lindley, you probably know him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he's done a fantastic book, but this is really from the point of view of an English uh, early modernist scholar which yeah. is very valuable, very useful. But me as a musicologist and a musician, I needed something, you know, deeper there. And I thought, well, it's a pity. And then when you go to um, Shakespeare in music, you come across quite a lot on very famous things like Mendelssohn and Sibelius and, of course, Verdi. But there is, you know, this kind of a systematic and the other the kind of a unification of the both sides to think what is that makes it's so attractive to look at this topic and the problematics of this topic. And that's when I thought, you know, we, we really should have a group. Now, funny enough, when I sent the proposal to, to the RMA, because I wanted to have an, a parent, an umbrella, I thought that will help us, you know, take, take off. The, the person who was involved, he said, surely there is a study group on Shakespearean music. You can't be the first. I said, no, there is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, they wanted, they didn't want to accept because they thought you're not unique. And I said, no, there is nothing. So they looked and said, well, you're right, there should be. <laughs> and yeah, so here we go. And I had the support of really great people like yourself. And because these kind of things can never happen. And and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping for this to take off and to become something that, you know, gets more and more attraction and mm. we can have regular meetings and regular things. Mm. And the big idea for me is to, I think the, the other inspiration for it, if you have ever come across Global Shakespeare, have you heard of that? I haven't actually, no. Can you um, explain what that is? Yeah, it's a project that is based at the MIT and I came across that as I was looking for, you know, Shakespeare in Russia and Soviet Union. And so it's a database with several headquarters around the world, you know, a couple in Europe, a few in Asia, in North America, of course, South America. What they do is that they, the people who are in these headquarters, are, it's all, you know, voluntarily, just as we are doing with the Shakespeare music. Whenever something happens that is noteworthy in terms of, you know, a new performance and production, a new production of Shakespeare in that country, they enter the details of it into this database and they put a video clip of it and some reviews of it. So gradually we can see, you know, for example, a new, I don't know, Macbeth in Tokyo. So it gets covered like that. So it's, it's a very, very useful thing. If you look global Shakespeare, uh, MIT, you will come across it. It's, it, should, it deserves to be known a bit more, I think. And it's all, but it's more about the productions and theater productions. So I, when I saw that, I thought there should be something like this about music, you know, mm. all productions of kind of, you know, the new music that is Shakespeare, Shakespeare based music that is produced anywhere in the world. Imagine if you had people around and we could ask people, okay, enter the details of it so we can all have access to it. So basically to be honest, my big goal is to create that, to have an equivalent of the MIT Global Shakespeare within Shakespearean music so that wow. we have people around so that you can, you know, we can develop this website to more like a database and to include everything new that comes in. Especially in 2016, there were so many new commissions, you know, mm. operas and ballets and whatnot. And just imagine if we had, we could hear from everywhere else. We know in England and in probably North America what happens, but we don't know what happens in India. Sure. So that's why it's really helpful to have international coordinators. Mm. So that was another kind of, but that was the big ambitious part of the project. So mm. hoping that one day it, we will get there. You know, that's my life dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, a really valuable aim, isn't it? Just as, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a kind of canon of famous Shakespearean music works that are out there but it's I guess part of the aim of the group is to show that Shakespearean music is still a living relationship if you like you know there are still composers composing works based on based on Shakespeare this is still a kind of active conversation that is that is absolutely going on and hopefully the group as a whole and also this podcast I guess um, can kind of highlight highlight that that ongoing dynamic that's happening Exactly. Um, One of the ideas was to also not have just the scholars, but have practitioners, mm. but have composers. And why, you know, last year I organized a conference, not a conference, I don't know you see, a concert 
of Shakespeare music with the students of the University of Manchester, as you have very kindly put up the video of it on, on our website. Uh, but the whole idea was, first of all, I wanted these students to think and come across these works that they weren't aware of or they, you know, took for granted. And also I commissioned, you know, I asked around and one of the students volunteered to actually write a new piece on it, on Shakespeare, based on Shakespeare. And, oh God, he wrote to me, oh, that was one of the most fun things I had ever done in my life. But it was it was so amazing to see these students taking it on and enjoying it so much, you know. And I we, we decided to do uh, Officer Crocky to finish with because I thought that's you know just going to bring really the energy that these young people have. So yeah, that's the kind of thing that you know, I, and it's exactly where you know it was an open day for the new students to come and visit the University of Manchester. And some of them came and thanked us because they said that, you know, the program book, the program booklet, I tried to make as informative as possible. So that was based on my researchers. Now these students were practitioners and they were doing, so it was exactly what I, and then we have a composer as well. And that's exactly the three criteria of the group that we want to have, you know, mm. to have the practical way of sight, the composition, the new works that come in and, pe and the research and the scholarship of it. I mean, and yeah, it is, a, it is a subject area that, as you said, brings together all of these people from dis different disciplines, from theatre, from, from literature, from music, as composers as well. And I guess one of the interesting things as a Shakespeare and music scholar is that you're constantly sort of between those stools, aren't you? You're kind of trying to constantly navigate those disciplines, as you said earlier in, in the conversation, that you're trying to balance the musicology side of things with the literature side of things while trying to hold in mind what's happening on stage as well. It's, it's, it's just a constant navigation that I guess we can never quite master, I suppose. No, but that's the beauty of it. <laughs> Everything that we can't get ever to the bottom of it becomes extremely fascinating because we have to just dig deeper and, and just gather information from other people and other enthusiastic people like yourself and other people that are hopefully joining our group gradually more and more. But I think the more we have, you know, the bigger community, the more interesting the discussions and exchanges will become. Now, for example, I myself, I have to say, I didn't know about the opera that you introduced in that RMA conference where I, came, oh. where I approached you. So and it was time of Athens, wasn't it? I didn't yeah. know at the time. Yes. Yeah. And it was yeah. and it was such a beautiful paper, you know, the, having the composer's own voice there. And it was just I thought that that's it. You nailed it. So <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that, you know, and, and it was exactly what I was hoping, you know, that's a kind of composer's own personal the, why Shakespeare becomes more personal for people you know and that's I've come across not just with what you said but in my own research mm. that it becomes a kind of a vehicle or a means to say something much deeper inside you know I interviewed a composer who unfortunately passed away in January Sergei Slanimsky he was probably the one of the greatest living composers of um, Russia at the moment basically post-Shostakovich uh, generation. I went to his own flat in order to interview him in his apartment in St. Petersburg because I was going to ask him about his opera on Hamlet. He composed this Hamlet opera in 1991, just as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And of course, I went there, you know, with 35 prepared questions. And I thought, okay, I'm going to... And I took my dictaphone, thank goodness... So I entered there, and this is one of these really, really you know, intellectual apartments in St. Petersburg, a gorgeous place with a very out-of-tune piano in the middle of it. So he invites me, you know, he's probably in his late 70s then, invites me and says, oh, hey, come in here. And I say, well, sit. I ask him the first question, and he said, well, let's go and sit at the piano. And he puts the score in front of him. And for the next two hours, and that was my question number one, he plays and comments and sings through his whole score. <laughs> and then after about really, you know, an hour and a half or two hours, he turns to me and says, next question. <laughs> <laughs> so I, thank God I had my dictaphone and I recorded all that. I said, yeah. to be honest, I don't know. But I found out that the whole thing, because I had gone to ask, you know, where you commissioned, was it? But the whole thing was a private uh, project. And he said, just at that time, he had time on his hand because everything was collapsing. There was no commissions or anything. 
and he mm. always wanted to write something on Hamlet. So if he had time, he went to his kind of, you know, they had holiday home cottage and just wrote this out of for himself and didn't think about it being performed because it took many years for it to be performed. Didn't think anything, just Hamlet as a way of, you know, just writing what he wanted and what he had on his mind. So I thought, you know, that's wow. so touching because we want to always read political, you know, uh, things when it comes to Russia and so it, you know, oh yeah did you want to say a message but there was no message there it was just his heart and I mean there was messages but a lot more universal I think you know and that's the universality that very often composers at least in my research of Common Cross when they want to make something much bigger and much more universal than just you know something about the Stalin or Putin they go to Shakespeare because it's universal, you know, and by mm. trying to say that, oh, yes, for example, this, this um, Kozintsev's film Hamlet is about the Stalin, you're actually really demeaning and making it much narrower because, mm. you know, his film with the Shostakovich's music was more about a very universal message of good and evil rather than just Stalin and whatever. So, yeah, that's, as you say, the universality of Shakespeare, of course, has, is probably the most attractive thing yeah and you never want to boil these 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 works these pieces down to just that one blunt message do you it's they're multi-layered there's nuances to 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 all of them from the personal relationship with Shakespeare or right up to the the societal message um, and I guess what you would call the universal the longer lasting message um, as as well I'm just sitting here feeling slightly kind of uh guilty that I haven't managed to write a Hamlet opera during the lockdown that we've just been <laughs> <laughs> Yes! Uh, yeah, Shakespeare managed King Lear. So oh yeah. Write a, a Hamlet opera and <laughs> what have I done with myself? But anyway, this, this, I think your anecdote leads us nicely onto um, the question of uh, who Shakespeare really is for Russian composers which is obviously where your the majority of your research lies um <clears throat> maybe more broadly who is shakespeare in russia and whether you maybe feel that russia or russian composers have a different relationship from for example british composers or composers of other nationalities with with shakespeare that's a very, very good and extremely general question. <laughs> I mean, I can write a whole, uh, you probably need a whole series of books to reply to that. But I just can touch the surface of it by saying a few things about Shakespeare and Russia and then Shakespeare and Russian music. Well, the one thing that's very, is to bear in mind, and I was often questioned when I would say, you know, what my research was Shakespeare and Russian music they would say well why Shakespeare and Russia thinking that you know Russia has its own Pushkin why don't it need Shakespeare but it's absolutely amazing how despite kind of relatively late arrival in Russia because the first instances of Shakespeare being in uh, in Russian language and in Russia the Russian Empire was from a mid 18th century so it was not you know as early as for example in Poland in dance so it's despite that it began the very first one which was Hamlet mm. uh, and it was a very very distorted translation uh, from French from Voltaire's um, attitudes which was you know not a positive attitude so from then it was already First of all, Hamlet was quite politically from the very start, you know, connected with politics. So, you know, the bands and because very often they could see the same uh, struggle for power and killings to get power to, for the throne within their own czars. So that's quite understandable. But we could say probably it was thanks to the German attitude of the, you know, the romantic attitude of the Germans that Shakespeare became kind of inseparable part of the Russian psyche and Russian culture. And it was, you know, following these footsteps of Goethe and the likes. So it was, it's the fever of Shakespeare that took all Europe in, uh, in the romantic, you know, in the, and the romantic writers and authors. And it got to Russia as well. But what is very interesting is that very quickly, it also became a way of kind of, you know, to, 
to show their superiority. For example, in 1864, which would have been a year of an anniversary, you know, the 64 ones yeah. are anniversary, uh, it, there was uh, quite a lot of celebrations, including music ones. And here there was a speech that Turgenev, Ivan Turgenev, you know, the great uh, Russian author, he gave this very famous speech, which he called uh, Hamlet and Don Quixote. And the question, the, by, in that speech, he basically said that human being is either a Hamlet or a Don Quixote. Don Quixotes are goal-orientated, they are simple but affectionate, they work, they are active, they have you know, a dream and they work towards it. Hamlets are superfluous, they do nothing. Right. They dream, they are, you know, they have the big dreams but they, do, they are inactive and they do nothing towards it. So kind of very negative attitude to the Hamlets. But by doing that, you know, it's, if you don't think about whether it is liking Hamlet or not liking, but the idea that you are basically making it as a kind of a, a personality and a kind of person, you know, the type, the types that are in the society, you're imposing that your society or Russian society is made up of Don Quixotes and Hamlets. And it kind of really made, uh, that was the first step probably to make Hamlet really a part of the Russian cultural understanding. And in the same speech, he says, he claims, I can't uh, say word for word, but he says, uh, we can claim that we understand Shakespeare better than our German and Italian friends. And I dare to say that even better than the English. So, you know, okay. they, they are basically saying, we are, despite the translation and everything, we understand Shakespeare better because it's closer to our personality or something. And you probably have heard the William Morris saying, you know, Hamlet should have been a Russian, not a Dane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, again, you know, kind of suggests there is so much affinity between. From then on, it was like all over Europe, Romantic Europe, you know, after Shakespeare was for Byron and for Pushkin. And, you know, that's the same thing going on in Russia as well. Now, with music, it's, again, it's a little bit of a superiority thing because in the same 1864, there was a big um, festival of Shakespeare-based music. And César Kiwi, who was you know, a Slavophile and very anti-Westernizer in terms of music, he started mocking you know, Verdi, saying that only Italians dare to uh, make fun of Shakespeare. And that by, uh, in his Macbeth, Verdi has basically reduced um, Shakespeare to Punch and Judy. And you can see that it's not so much about, you know, the musical values that it is about, you know, the same obsessions that is about the Russian superiority. They're kind of wanting to avoid being like the West, um, being becoming, you know, so the Westernizers and the Slavophiles. And I think these are all showing that Shakespeare in general is a lot, matters a lot more than just another topic, you know, right. than yeah. another subject matter or another a play that you can base your opera on. It matters mm. a lot more than that. It's kind of, you know, very deeply rooted in everything. Mm. So that's one thing I think is important to bear in mind. And of course, with the complications, what makes the question of Shakespeare and Russia and Soviet Russia very interesting is, of course, how the Soviet Union had to change the narrative of Shakespeare in order to, to make it fit all this ideology, the new ideology, and to allow it to continue to be a part of the culture. Because, you know, if you think about it, who, if you have got, just got rid of your own king and czar, why do you need to bother about somebody who writes about kings and queens? But mm. very soon it becomes about something a lot more than that. It again goes into that universal language or the, the universal message. So that's, it's a very fascinating thing to look at, for example, Shakespeare in the 20s and 30s, how it gradually changes to the point that then, you know, in the 1930s, basically the authors are told to write like Shakespeare. You know, there was a, um, a slogan uh, to Shakespeareize more, let's, let's do more Shakespeare. So it means, you know, inviting people to write like Shakespeare. So it's quite absolutely amazing, the whole thing in terms of the culture in general. I think in terms of composers and probably also even performances, there is one thing that I've written here for myself to make sure I say, because I find it's a very interesting topic compared to the English, is that probably they have a little bit more liberty. 
you know, right. let's say if you, you probably, I don't know if you went to Brett Dean's Hamlet or not. Most criticism about it was about the libretto. Why? Yes. Because yeah, because we'll come out and all Thomas Addis's um, um, was yeah. a Tempest. This is a constant, now, my own research in Shakespeare and British opera, this is just a constant recurring theme that you know if you're damned if you if you keep Shakespeare's words because then you're ruining them by setting them to music but then if you change Shakespeare's words in order to kind of do your own thing and distance yourself slightly from the source material then you're equally opening yourself up for criticism no that's exactly the problem and you know I came out and I thought oh did he need to put uh, to be or not to be there or did he not you know, if you go to a um, Hamlet opera in English you are there waiting any moment where is it going to be to be or not to be absolutely and what's he going to do with it and, <laughs> and what's he going to do with it it's going to ruin it that sort of thing <laughs> whereas you know if you think about it in R- Russian or any other translation they kind of are free from that straight jacket you know, because they're already dealing with a translation. So it's already one step closer to being a libretto than it is in an English-speaking context. And also, you know, they, in here you go to an opera based on Shakespeare and you think, ah, what has it done to Shakespeare to make it better? Why should I go to listen to a Shakespeare being sung rather than being spoken? Whereas, you know, already in a lang- when it is not, it has lost its language. So I, I think that is one kind of an advantage that all the foreign Shakespeare's have over English and American Shakespeare's, that they have got free of the language. So they, mm. can, they already are dealing with something that is an adaptation because the translation is you know, an, a form of adaptation. And in terms of um, Russia, of course, they were, there's a, it's a huge uh, topic to talk about the translations. But there were two trends. One of them was, like in any translation, to be closer to the, you know, as, as loyal as you can to Shakespeare's or to the, to the source. And the other one was to make it as performable as possible and to be, you know, basically a translation for the stage. And in that case, of course, Pasternak's translation has always been the one that almost all operas and, um, you know, any kind of songs prefer because it's very musical it has taken more modern language of Russia, so it's easier to, you know, to add. And despite the fact that, you know, if somebody sits down and really studies Pasternak's translation, is quite a lot of distortion because, you know, he was translating at a time that he was not allowed to write. So for him, translation was escapism. He was right. basically putting what he wanted to say in the translations. Um, so yeah, it's, it, that's why it becomes a very complicated matter. That's Sergei Slanimsky that I told you, for instance. He used Pasternak's translation for his opera. And I, I asked him, I said, you know, one of, when he arrived to the personality, the uh, character of Ophelia, I said, well, what, how do you see Ophelia? I said, oh, yes, but she's the source of purity and innocence the most innocent and pure thing that you know is and is crushed is the real the real victim of Hamlet as a play is Ophelia, but that's entirely Pasternak's because Pasternak you know took out all sexual references that are in the language of Ophelia, so his Ophelia is a completely asexual you know completely freed of anything, mm. and it is a symbol of absolute ethereal you know purity and you know a bright feature. So yeah, it's, and it's interesting that, and also according to that, he had made kind of pastiches of English old songs for, for his Ophelia songs. So I found that that is something that is really based on a translation of Shakespeare rather than you know, direct contact. So it's already culturally slanted. Not that it is a bad thing, it's just interesting to see how it's been done. So, yeah, I, I guess it raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it, about are you even dealing with Shakespeare necessarily at that at, at that point or you, you're dealing with Shakespeare at a at a remove aren't you and, and it's, I guess that's too big a question for us to answer it is and now. there's a very useful article I think I can't remember whom but about Berlioz you know the, mm-hmm. the Shakespeare that Berlioz knew has Abs- nothing yeah. to do with Shakespeare <laughs> yes absolutely yeah. yet you know you can't find probably you cannot find any composer that loved Shakespeare as much as Berlioz did the relationship between Berlioz and 
his imagined Shakespeare, I guess, um, is absolutely fascinating. I really hope that we do get a chance to talk with, with somebody who's a sort of expert. But it's on, not just on, on Russia, because, because, for example, I've been looking at Soviet in general and in Georgia, for example. That's an interesting thing. Georgia is probably the only country you can go out and hear people's names. Georgia and Armenia. And for mm. people's first names being Hamlet, Desdemona. <laughs> you know we, we should, don't have <laughs> we should bring that back i think i, I can yeah. definitely see, yeah maybe we we need to bring back some uh some shakespearean names more frequently in, but it in, is in amazing England, uh, yeah Britain. gamlet you can it's a very common name in georgia and in uh and in armenia gamlet no i didn't mention georgia just for that it's just that one of the other things i had looked at was this georgian composer machavariani who mm. also wrote a hamlet opera Mm. And it's a completely different thing for him. He uses Hamlet in order to make a nationalist message yeah. about the, you know, because it's the, against the centrality of Russia and about the nationalism in, in Georgia, state of Georgia. So, uh, which is quite interesting. It's a very interesting opera and has never been performed on the stage because he insisted that it has to be done in Georgian language. And uh, of course, it couldn't happen during the Soviet time, and it's still now, all the, uh, his son, who is alive and who is a conductor, all the offers that he gets are from, you know, in Russian language, and he wants to keep his father's word and, you know, not allow that. So the pos- there is a possibility, there was going to be a possibility to do it in Georgia and in Tbilisi next year, which was very hopeful, but it's always the money, the problem. You know, the, when it comes to the money, then there is the Putin uh, and there is a Georgia and Russia problem. So it's, it's, a, it's a very totally complicated issue when it comes to anything like that. But it's just interesting that, you know, you don't think about the satellite republics when you think about Russia and Soviet Union. Mm. But they had, you know, there was as much adaptations, music adaptations of Shakespeare in these satellite republics as it was in, in Russia. You know, we don't think about Ukraine or Georgia or Armenia, mm. but um, that's what I actually find more fascinating because they were, and also the f- interesting thing is that the further away you were from the centers, like Moscow and St. Petersburg, the more you could get away with things because they, you had a little bit less, you know, people watching over your shoulder and checking you. So it's quite interesting to look into one of the things I like to do once the travel is allowed and I can go to archives is to follow up uh, an Armenian composer called uh, Avet Terterian, mm. who's done some Shakespearean works. And it's quite interesting to see how it's because he was he had a very modernized um, his modern language, musical language. Well, that's really, really fascinating because in people's minds, perhaps the idea of Russian Shakespeare music is you know Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet, uh, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. as well, Shostakovich's um, film music, which you've already mentioned, and yet there is this wealth of kind of undiscovered, or well, while well, you're discovering it, um, of <laughs> of a kind of satellite Soviet works. Um, maybe if I could just move move on to a slightly different topic of of discussion, but one that I I know you you've done plenty of research on as well, is I guess I'm interested in, in how Shakespeare was particularly used or, or not used um, during times of oppression in Russia during the 20th century. And I, I know particularly you've written on Stalin's relationship with Hamlet, which uh, is a play that we've already sort of brought up a few times in the context of Russia and Shakespeare music. So I wonder if you could just expand on 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 that for me. What what was going on there in the in the early and mid twentieth century, and how Shakespeare was used during those particularly oppressive and and confusing and, and violent times, and the particular nature of the the Soviet leader's relationship with that play and that character. Very good question. I mean, the reason I come to Hamlet more and more again is probably because that's the most Shakespearean production um, play in Russia and Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and by by looking at that play, you kind of cover the other ones as well. In general, comedies were a lot more in favor, of course, than tragedies. Which mm-hmm. and especially Taming of the Shrew is that was one of the most performed comedies. So it's not that there was only Hamlet and nothing else. 
Othello was very top in the number of performances and productions. And it's, it's not proved anywhere. There is nothing written about it, but it's claimed that Othello was, was Stalin's favorite play. But there is the most complicated thing that I came across when I was doing my research, and it's not so much music related, but it's important for anybody thinking about doing anything in an oppressed, you know, any research within an oppressed context, is that I came across this thing everywhere reading that Stalin banned Hamlet. I thought, God, okay, that's so good. Oh God, that's, you know, great, a ban. Mm. You know, and I tried to say, uh, I remember very quickly I had come across it and I just thought, okay, where can I quote? Where does this come from? And it became a detective story for me. I started trying to find, you know, I, one book quotes the other book and then they go to that book and that goes another book and that goes, and it goes back and back to an article in the 1960s, 70s in English that says, you know, just one statement of uh, Stalin was enough to ban Hamlet for forever, um, you know, during the, the, the Stalin regime. And again, it did, that didn't have any any um, reference. So I thought to myself, well, I'm going crazy. I can't. And I, so I went in archives in Russia because I have done many trips to Russia and I never come across anything that is, because a ban needed to have a document. You can't just, and it turned out, I thought gradually, well, is it made up? Was it really banned? And then I started seeing that, okay, if it's Stalin banned, then I see that in 1942, there is a, from a whole Shakespeare a festival happening in Yerevan in Armenia, which is a part of Soviet Union, and including performances of Hamlet. So that doesn't really make sense, you know, if it is banned. You can't go ahead and do an official trans um, festival. And gradually I realized that it's probably a myth. And it was very interesting because this brings me to one of the productions and one of Shakespeare projects that probably is you know, I'd like to have a whole chapter or something on it when, once I go back to working on my postdoc. And that's in the 1940s in Moscow, the Moscow Art Theatre, which actually was a theatre that Stalin adored. And he even had a special, you know, underground way to get to it so that he didn't need to come to the street. Apparently there was a way, a tunnel that would take him to it. Somebody showed it to me. So it's in the you know, center of Moscow. So the Moscow Theater was planning to do a production of Hamlet. It was the brainchild of uh, Nemirovich Danchenko. So Vladimir Nemirovich Danchenko was probably, you know, is the co-founder of the Moscow Theater alongside Stanislavski. We all know Stanislavski's name because of the method acting, but Nemirovich Danchenko was as important for Russian, for Russian theater. So it was his projects, and he had quite a lot of people on board, including Pasternak, who was, it was going to be the first staging of the, trans, the new translation of Pasternak. And Nimirovich Tanchenko actually worked very closely with Pasternak on the translation to make it, you know, a staging for its first proper for the stage. Uh, it had a Boris Livanov as an as a, um, actor, again, a very important actor then, uh, Dimitri as a, and Shebalin, uh, Visarion Shebalin as composer, who is a, you know, he was probably number three to Prokofiev and, and Shostakovich. We know less about him, but he was extremely important. So uh, there is this production, and the this, this story is that, and this is a story that the son of the main actor, Hamlet, had said, that in 1940, there is a reception at, in Kremlin and his father, so Boris Livanov, the actor of Hamlet, meets up with Stalin. And Stalin tells him, what are you working on these days? So well, we are working on Hamlet. So he says, but Hamlet is weak. So he answers to Stalin, but Tavarish is Stalin, our Hamlet is, is strong. So Stalin says, oh, that's good because the weak get beaten. Right. That's all he says. Now, how something like this becomes a ban, God knows. You know, it all shows the fact that at the time it was a society that was quite frightened. Anything could become very easily. But in fact, the rehearsals of that production went ahead. They went ahead until 1945. So there was, it couldn't have been a ban because they were rehearsing. They had 500 and something 
rehearsals. Mm. And the reason it never happened was that many deaths happened, to be honest. Nemirovich Janshinko was very old. So first he died. Then the, uh, no, first the war broke out. So it was the war and they were evacuated. Then he died. Then the substitute director died. <laughs> and then the next person who come uh, became the main, you know, the director of the theater said that there are more important plays and put that on the back burner. And by then there was basically no driving force and it just gradually. But I came across a com- the complete score by Shevalin for this production. You know, it's orchestrated. It's not even a, just a piano score. It's complete full score. Never performed. One of the things that I like to bring back and perform, you know, get it performed is that it's just sitting in an archive in in uh, in Moscow. Uh, so yeah, as you can see, these things are. It's, there is we like to look at Shakespeare and Hamlet in an oppressed regime as black and white. We mm. we like those kind of stories. You know, Ham, Stalin banned Hamlet is a good story. It's a, it's nice a really yeah. it's a great story. So you know. It, and it fits, it fits the Stalin. And probably he really didn't like Hamlet because a few, you know, one of the things that happened was a few years after that, Eisenstein, his film, Ivan the Terrible, uh, the first Ivan the Terrible volume, he's got two films, one and two. The first one got a Stalin Prize. The second one was criticized and taken off and banned. And actually he, this actually has been recorded that he was, called to Kremlin and he was told that what why have you made Ivan the Terrible look like Hamlet because it's quite weak mm. you know so clearly Stalin didn't like Hamlet and found the character weak and it's funny to think that basically that was based on that Turgenev Don Quixote and Hamlet that I spoke about right it's really that attitude nothing more than that that he's understanding and probably he read Turgenev and that's why <laughs> so yeah. his attitude to Hamlet was a weak superfluous man rather mm. than and Othello is somebody who takes action. So, you know, although the action is killing, <laughs> but it's an action. Also, we're talking about the wartime. The wartime is a time that you need action rather than, you know, inactivity and sitting at home and, you know, pondering whether I should avenge my father or not. Mm. So it's, but this, the, to make a big story is the thing that they, we tend to do quite a lot to think that, you know, okay, you know, it's an oppressive regime, so we have to do it. We have to think that it is a ban or not ban. But in general, if you think about it, one of the things that happened is that when Stalin died, right away, there were three performances, very important performances of Hamlet happening. So that shows that there was kind of pressure had built up. But that was for everyone in 1948 onward, you know, everybody was under pressure because there was the second wave of these oppressions. In general, I think it's very, very important for anybody looking at these to make sure that it's more, we are more looking at many shades of gray than mm. looking at black and white. I think that's the whole thing. Mm. But it is um, probably of, in terms of music and, and theater, because quite a lot of the music is for the theater and for films. And I can say Shakespeare probably was not so much, you know, put under uh, or taken off than quite a lot of others would have been. So that's, that's quite an interesting thing. Maybe because it had become such a fixed part of the national culture that it had become kind of untouchable. So to the point that, for example, I don't know if I had mentioned it to you or not, when it comes, for example, to Prokofiev's Roma and Juliet, you know that his initial, his first idea was to, for the Roma and Juliet to have a happy ending. So Roma and Juliet, oh yeah, yeah. They, they, he, he had said that he worked with Radloff. Radloff was a theater director, Shakespearean theater director, very important, uh, Sergei Radloff. And they worked that, it's just a question of timing, if you think about Roma and Juliet. It's a question of arriving just a tiny bit. <laughs> there's nothing else. If you like, if there's yeah. a few seconds, we'll put this thing right. It's punctuality and they, more than anything, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so they just set the timing in a way that they arrive at the time and they get together and they live and they dance together to their happiness. Mm. So that was the initial. And if you think about it, if you judge by the idea of that, you know, the Soviet regime was oppressive and they insisted on happy endings and the socialist realist, that ending, which was the brainchild of Radlov and Prokofiev, was a lot more socialist realist and Soviet than the original. Mm. So you would have 
but it got it got attacked completely. They said, you know, that's that's a travesty, and it was because they thought you don't mess up with Shakespeare. It was really that. It's they said, you know, you cannot do this to Shakespeare, even if socialist realist things are happy ending. But you cannot do this to Shakespeare. So they didn't allow it to. So he had to reverse it to, you know, to the uh, tragic ending. And that's one example to show that, you know, it's not exactly what we always expect it to be. And that's the difficulty of all these doctrines like socialist realism, that for when it comes to music, it becomes much more difficult to pinpoint what you want from it. And in a way, on one hand, music can get away with a lot more. Mm. And on the other hand, they can find fault where you don't think there is a fault. <laughs> so yeah. it's, no, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic and that's what it makes it so endless and so fascinating. Even looking at the very famous Roman Juliet and others, there are still layers that has to be looked at. We look at the surface, but there is so much more to be looked at and to, you know, to dig and to find in there. I guess just, just to kind of round off, I guess, my, mm-hmm. guess my question is, obviously, as we've just established, you're somebody who has delved really deeply into the world of, of Russian Shakespeare music. But for anybody who's at the start of their journey with this topic, where would you recommend that we, we start with that? Where should we start listening? Where should we start um, reading? You're absolutely welcome to plug your own research there <laughs> if you'd like to. Um, but, you know, maybe apart from those two uh, or three big works that we've mentioned, where would you say that we should um, we should begin our journey with Russian Shakespeare music? Well, yes, read my research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it is, for example, I have uh, just come out an article on those two operas that I mentioned, on Slanimsky's and on Machavariani's, the two Hamlet operas. And I think... Uh, especially for Machavariani, because it has never been performed, I've tried to do a real scene by scene introduction and analysis of it because it's so fascinating the way it's it's really not following the plot at all. It's more about the psychology of Hamlet, how his brain is basically this getting distorted as the story goes on. So it's very very fascinating. Yeah. So there are and you know there are other things that are published and written which is useful. I think. I think I would say even the familiar ones, probably the familiar ones are the easiest place to start because they're familiar, but to listen to them and to look at them and to read about them in another way, in the way that doesn't confine them to make them about a specific message. For instance, I would, you know, they always say the entry point to Soviet Shakespeare is Kozintsev's Hamlet film and Mm -hmm. King Lear. Those two films, both of them, Vishosakovich's music, musics are fantastic, absolutely amazing. But I would say just not to read all these things that are saying that this is about the Stalin and a portrait of a Stalin and this, but to really try to find something a little bit beyond that. And what is fascinating is to find how, for example, Shostakovich cross-references his own work, you know, how this from something that he uses for this Hamlet, also he uses for some other work. And then to see why those two, you know, what is the affinity between those two things that he's using the same music for them. Sometimes it's just a practical matter. For example, there is a scene in Hamlet, the graveyard scene. And he's got a very, there's a very beautiful kind of a, um, uh, how do you call it? A kind of festive, very uh, old music playing at the background. That is so quiet in the film, you can't even re- hear it. So he uses the same thing in one of his string quartets, just because he wants it to be more audible, he couldn't hear it. But for example, especially, I think especially the King Lear is one of the things that I think where music and action are so interwoven. It's just absolutely amazing. It's not even as good as that in Hamlet, but in the way that music and the film are really just one entity. And it helps because there's the visual because mm. let's face it, the language barrier is always there and it will always be there. And it should never put people off. So maybe that's why I say that it's not too bad to start from something that has a visual to go with it. At the same time, then there are also, you know, there are songs. For example, one of the things that we performed in the concert was by Weinberg, which is for Weinberg, the Polish originally, but Soviet composer. And, and that's he's somebody got a, who you're, you're writing a book on at the moment, Exactly, right? yeah. yes. 
So he's got a whole cycle of Shakespeare's sonnets. And they are absolutely amazing. They're absolutely beautiful. So that's, for example, the songs I find that have something, they find the core of the message. And because they are free of the language, they can choose, for example, the translation that Weinberg chose is very interesting because both he and Shostakovich set Sonnets number 66, which has a lot of resonance for Russians, you know, art made tongue-tied by society, by, by authority. That always resonates with, all the, with, with any oppressed um, people. And they choose two completely different translations just because they want to form, you know, to mold it to their own musical language. Mm. So I would say, you know, the songs, I think, are quite interesting but I think the main thing is to be curious and not just to want the mainstream, but to think, you know, what else is in there? There is a Macbeth poem, symphonic poem by Yuri Kachurov. I don't even think quite a lot of people have heard of Yuri Kachurov, but he was a friend of Prokofiev. And this tone poem is, he calls it symphony, is on Macbeth and very similar to Strauss in a way, but quite fascinating in its own way, you know? Well, as I said, my idea was to gradually for each of us on this Shakespeare music group to be able to make these kind of kind of recommended listening and maybe write a little bit about each of them so that we get our community to be more informed. Mm. I'm sure there is so much about you know Shakespeare in other languages and in other cultures that I don't know about. And I really, you know, it's, a, it's an endless world and I think we can all somehow help each other to learn more about it because once you hear say Weinberg's setting of 66 and Shostakovich's and then find it in another language by someone else suddenly that whole sonnet sounds differently and reads differently to you and that's where I find very fascinating that sometimes transmedial adaptation of Shakespeare feeds back to how you read and how you understand Shakespeare's text itself you know, my first encounter with Shakespeare, and that's the last thing I say, <laughs> was <laughs> through ha- causing self's Hamlet. I was in right. Iran. I was a teenager. Mm. And um, it was during the Khomeini regime. So we didn't have really, uh, it wasn't allowed to have art films or anything. But there was this underground cinema. Um, funny enough, it was called Modern Times, Aslu Jadid. Very dodgy area of Tehran. But they would have, uh, um, from time to time, they had retrospectives of great filmmakers. That's where I saw first Tarkovsky and completely changed my life. (laughs) And then they had this retrospective of Kozintsev and they put Hamlet and King Lear. So the first night was Hamlet and I went. And that was my first time ever encounter with Shostakovich's music, with Shakespeare at all, and Mm. with Hamlet at all. And that's how I got introduced to, to Hamlet, to the point that I didn't even know the ending. And I remember I was with my mom and I said, but it was just a little scratch. Did he have to die? <laughs> <laughs> because he just gets a little scratch from that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but why did you? And my mom said, well, it's a tragedy. Everybody has to die. <laughs> but funny enough, after that, and I still cannot read Shakespeare's Hamlet and not see this face of the Russian actor that I saw in that mm. and have that attitude. This shaped probably forever my attitude towards Hamlet. You know, it's a very determined Hamlet. It's a strong Hamlet. So when I read about Hamlet being weak, I could never understand what the hell are they talking about? So you completely so, disagree with Stalin then? That's, uh, I that's completely disagree with Stalin. <laughs> yeah. On many things on this too. <laughs> on Hamlet especially. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle, for that. I mean, well, first, thank you so much. First experiences of Shakespeare and Shakespearean music as well are often so visceral. It was lovely to, to hear that story um, at the end then of how you first, I guess, got interested in this whole area just as, as a teenager. And I think we've got a real sense from the conversation of the kind of journey that it's, that it's taken you on across, across continents and, you know, in exploring loads of different Shakespearean pieces it's it's absolutely been wonderful to talk to you and thank you for introducing me to uh, this, this topic I hope that uh, I hope that other people enjoy enjoy listening to you talk about it as much as I have so thank you very much to Michelle Asai and I'm going to go and think about whether I am a Hamlet or a Don Quixote I think 
<laughs> That's a good thing to end on. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and sharing all this uh, many, many things. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thanks. <laughs>